Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. Thank you for joining us for another discussion on Sabbath Hajare Batsai Dasvi. This is the last podcast episode in a series of 11, and I hope you've been following along with us. My name is Jasleen Kaur. I'm a research associate at Sikri. I'm joined today by Harinder Singh, co-founder of the Sikh Research Institute and innovation director. Hudufateh Harinder Singh, how are you? Or you call Sarji Fateh? I'm good, Jasleen. How are you? And Fateh to the audience listening to this. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of close this out and reflect a little bit on uh, on the past podcasts, including uh, including the current one, but sort of thinking about it all over the last couple of months um, together. That will be really great. Uh, so before we get started, uh, as always, we're going to listen to the recitation. I'm going to read the translation and then we'll get into our conversation. A little bit about the recording you're going to hear. It's done by Harjinder Singh, who's a research associate at Sikri in Gurbani, who has a background in Gurbani linguistics. Um, and the pronunciation you're going to hear follows the most simple and non-discretionary pattern meant for the masses. So it's pronounced the way it's inscribed. Let's take a listen. Guruji ka khalsa, Guruji ki fatha. देव गंधारी पात साही दसवी बिन हर नाम ना बाचन पै चौदह लोक जाहे बस कीने ताते कहां पलै है रहाओ राम रहीम उबार न साक है जाकुर नाम रटै है ब्रह्मा बिसनु रुद्र सूरज सासे ते बस काल सबै है भेद पुराण कुरान सबै माते जाकुर नेत कहै है इंद्र फनिंद्र मुनिंद्र कल्प बहो त्यावत ध्यान न है जाकर रूप रंग नह जनियति सो के मस्याम कहै है छुटे ओहु काल जालते तब ही ताहे चरण लपटै है वाहे गुरु जी का खालसा now that we've heard the recitation, I'll read the translation. One's identification. Why do you need to identify with the one? Dev Gandhari, Sovereign Ten. No one can be saved without Har's Nam, one's identification. That one who controls the 14 worlds, where can you run away from that one? Pause, reflect. Ram and Rahim cannot ferry you across whose names you are repeating. Brahma, Vishnu, Rudra, the sun and the moon are all under the control of death. 
All wisdoms of Vedas, Puranas, and Quran call that one infinite. Indra, Sheshnag, and great sages intensely concentrated for eons, but they still could not concentrate on that one. Whose form and color cannot be recognized, how can that one be called Shyam Krishna? You will only be free from the death web if you cling to the feet of that one. So Harinder Singh, um, let's start as always with the rag or musical mode. So can you just remind us <laughs> once more of the significance of Dev Gandhari and maybe what its significance might be here in this particular composition? Absolutely. So Dev Gandhari uh, is a wintry rag. It comes in that season and it implies that there has to be an heroic effort made to achieve particular level of contentment. So in this context, if you look at it in this Shabad, Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is essentially saying that, look, there is, uh, although, by the way, the rag is although sung rarely because it is hard to sing this rag, but it is invoking that mood, that flavor or the rust, which we like to say emotions, that there is a serious effort needed and it will produce not just happinesses as we see it or the joys as we see it, but a larger contentment. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think that will maybe that will come into play a little bit more as we as we continue our conversation. But um, I thought we could go line by line. As always, I've grouped them together. So some of these are two parters, but I thought we could start from the first and second lines where we're asked to pause and reflect. Um, so the Guru says, no one can be saved without Har's Nam, one's identification. That one who controls the 14 worlds, where can you run away from that one? Pause, reflect. Um, so what, I guess, what is the context around this composition? What are like the 14 worlds referred to here? And how, how does this relate to the paradigm that Guru Gobind Singh Sahib is subverting? Yeah, so... Let's work with the 14 worlds first. Well, you know, 14 worlds, what we are used to today is more like idea of heaven or hell. Everyone knows hell, everyone's heard of heaven. And depending on the religious tradition and which text one follows, or the interpretation of those texts, whether religious or not, this idea of that there is a happy afterlife, you know, where in fact now there are um, sort of uh, Netflix kind of uh, episodes made on what this resort-like happy place looks like, right? So people have their own ideas on this heaven uh, where they can look forward to as an afterlife. For most people, though, the invocation of hell comes in, which makes it a motivation to not go there, which essentially is, look, you got to have faith and don't commit sins and generally behave well, and you will end up not in hell. So this idea of uh, a bad place to be. Uh, so religions and philosophies have different versions of it. I'm sure you read Dante's Purgatory, so that, that was his interpretation of that as to what hells and heavens are. We have our own. I mean, there are 8 billion people on earth today, and we even if we have one version of it, we got 8 billion versions right there, right? So we have our own ideas of fear of hell or hell, our own ideas of heaven or comfort, comfortable place, uh, and different authors and people who explain these ideas, exegetes we call them, they come up with various versions of this. 
In Hinduism, there are multiple versions as well. But within this Rahau line, Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is saying that one version, which is a popular version in Hinduism, says there are 14 worlds, seven higher ones or heavens, and seven lower ones or hells. And you're aware of this, even uh, semantic traditions of these ideas as well. And what Guru Gobind Pasha is saying, look, unless you have Hari's Naam, and we can, we need to discuss a little bit of what Hari's Naam is, but Hari is, uh, well, let's discuss it first, because Hari is this idea of something which is all pervasive, uh, something which eliminates your fear and removes your suffering. We like to call it the force in the Sikh vocabulary, that's a koankar, but it is much more than that. So that's the idea of Hari. And Naam, at smallest of the levels, means your name, you know, the attributes you carry, your existence and your identity, and it's something much more than that. In Sikh tradition, this has become part of a culture. But sticking to this in a popular culture, in Hinduism, when it says that you have 14 worlds, where will you run to? Where will you hide? Because unless you have Hari's Naam, there is no way you can escape death or the strike of death. So the idea being people have been identifying with a particular idea of hell or heaven, and they focus so much on the afterlife, whether it is hell or heaven, and they still get caught up in this uh, death ideas, the fear related to death, but they are not focusing on the Hari's Naam, which is what we really need to be identifying with, the, the identification with the one. Yeah, I guess that kind of connects to like, I mean, so many of these compositions that we've talked about so far are, it's not just that the Guru is addressing a paradigm that needs subverting. It's like there's an addressing of the fear that is um, sort of motivating us. Uh, and so I think that that clears things up because I I had forgotten about those seven worlds. Uh, so that's helpful, the ways that we complicate things. Um, and, and, and also this is doing something else that currently you're not working on identifying with the one. You're doing everything to identify with something after death. Mm. How about experiencing this freedom, this heaven, because we are in hell, we speak like that. So Guru Sahib is saying, let's experience that now while you are alive. And that experience is actually you becoming free. Otherwise, you know what is happening is, uh, and you see this on TV, on YouTube channels, you hear about it, you hear about it. And it used to be just the deep south, you'll hear about in America, but this is global, uh, you know, where people are making efforts to secure a spot in heaven. And they keep stressing about, how about if I end up in hell? So instead of doing those things, take a hold of your life right now, identify with the all-pervasive force of this world, such that you're not caught up in the game of seven regions, whether they're hell or heaven or any other multiple versions of that. Yeah, we're like constantly worried about our, our salvation. So that makes sense. Um, and even that salvation, which is after death, not yes. salvation like now, here. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really that's really helpful. Um, okay, so then if we come to the third and fourth lines, uh, the Guru says, Ram and Rahim cannot ferry you across whose names you are repeating. Brahma, Vishnu, Rudra, the sun and the moon are all under the control of death. So I have two questions, but I'll just throw one at you and then I'll, I'll throw you the next one after you've answered. But first, can you explain the use of Ram and Rahim here? Um, and also the, these invocations of Brahma, Vishnu, and Rudra? Sure, let me see if I caught your question. <laughs> okay. So 
Look, Rao and Rahim are very common phrases in Indic culture, in the larger South Asian sort of popular culture as well, even today. And Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is invoking that. And what he's saying is, look, you can keep repeating whatever avatars or the pagambars, which will be the incarnations and the prophets you are used to. You can keep repeating them. You can keep counting on them. But can they really successfully take you across the Earth's journey? And it's in that context, he also mentions some other figures people identify with, not just with Rams and Rahims, which Ram and Rahim here refers to Ram Chandar, uh, the king of Ayodhya, you know, uh, like currently what the BJP wants to make a Hindutva nation based on Ram Raj, that Ram, which implies the incarnate Ram, you know, the king of Ayodhya. And Rahim refers, literally, we know it means merciful, but it's referring to people who follow that idea, which will be following Prophet Muhammad, looking for the testimony on the Armageddon day, so you cannot, you can, you not fall into hell and secure yourself a spot in heaven. So Ram and Rahim are actually collectively are referring to all the incarnates uh, and all the prophets in the world. That's the context here, because people identify with them. And remember, this is about identifying with the Hari, and Hari is now identity of the one, not just the prophets and avatars. Similarly, there is Brahma, Vishnu, and Rudra, the sun and the moon in there, because uh, Rudra is another name for Shiva, and there are Shiva is one of the larger uh, following, ancient following uh, in, 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 in Indic culture, in the Hindu culture. And what uh, Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is saying, who I keep referring to as my sovereign, is collectively the sovereign of the Panth. I, uh, take him as my sovereign as well. He says, don't identify with eventually somebody who dies. Because regardless of their glory and their following and their impact in a particular culture, in a particular geographical reality, they're still going to die. And it's, uh, so the, 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 the Brahma, Vishnu, and Rudra is referring to Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, which are three larger quote-unquote trinities of popular Hinduism. So essentially it's saying anything which eventually dies, regardless of their deification in this world, and we have our own deification in the popular culture, uh, that identity is not going to take you very far because you keep identifying with something which is not permanent, whereas the one is permanent. So that's what that, that was referring to. Yeah, I think that's helpful because even I, I mean, I studied Islam for so many years and I still, I forgot this idea of like um, intervening on our behalf or like on uh, seekers behalf. And this idea that like, even if we sin, someone will kind of advocate for, for us when it comes to the day of judgment. So it is interesting that it's this kind of like attaching to the one that we think can help ferry us across, as the Guru says. Um mm -hmm. That's really, yeah, that's put things into perspective for me. Um, but then I guess my follow-up question is that we have these namings of like maybe deities or holy people or people we think can help us. Um, hmm. But then why did the sun and moon come? I'm not fully understanding that. What is that doing in this listing? Well, I don't know if I can answer the why part. That only... <laughs> Gurgovind Singh Maharaj, or the ones who are attributing it to Gurgovind Singh Maharaj, or a particular poet, as we have discussed, you know, there are all sorts of things around who really is the author of it, but we take it in that spirit that this is explaining Gurgovind Singh. So explanation is within this culture, right? In culture, we have this, this is a global culture, including in India, 
that their dynasty is related to suns and moons. People have their own idea of what quote unquote celestial bodies are. And this is saying any other identity because the sun god and the moon god, this, you know, is very big in a global phenomena in various mythologies as well. And people say they are the descendants of the dynasties of this. In India, they're called Suryavanshis and Chandravanshis. Uh, so there is a complex sort of a lineage which is developed through these identities as well. And Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is disrupting that also. He's like, look, even if you may not be identifying with these particular identities, but you will have some other uh, identification with either as celestial bodies or this uh, identifying with something which is much bigger and seems much more permanent because all these are subject to death. Sun and moon's lives are much longer. And sun and moon's lives are longer, but even then, in the culture you are in, where you identify with through those dynasties, even they are subject to death, which means they are not uh, permanent as well. Eventually, they will die. And all this is, what this is telling me is, which is what I can answer, that was just an explanation. Uh, what this is telling me is that I can narrate those stories and ideas and I can learn from them regarding the conducts of these people, but why am I identifying with them if they're all subject to death? If they are all still playing the game of which level of hell or heaven you are getting into. So the one I'm interested in is to come out of that cycle. And that cycle is beyond these uh, major identities of the world. The only one who is beyond all that is the Hari, the one, the force, the all-pervasive one, the fear eliminator one, as well as the remover of all the sufferings, because that one doesn't have a depth. So all this is leading us towards, let's identify something which is permanent, which is not subjected to death. Yeah, okay, that's really helpful, especially like thinking about the next two lines, but especially like the next immediate next line where the Guru says, all wisdoms of Vedas, Puranas, and Quran call that one infinite. So again, that is being reinforced even in the text that we're dealing with in the like existing paradigms people have. And then the Guru goes on to say, Indra, Sheshnag, and the great sages intensely concentrated for eons, but they still could not concentrate on that one. So my first question related to these two lines is, we do see like the Vedas and Puranas getting mentioned a lot, um, but we don't usually see the Quran mentioned. So mm. I'll I'll make the question vague enough so that we're not we're not purporting to know definitely. But what do you think is going on here? <laughs> well, uh, I sort of alluded to it that how I was able to understand Rahim in the context of Prophet Muhammad is related to this because Quran is also mentioned. Vedas and Puranas are referring to, referring to, you know, the quote-unquote, the Indic or the South Asian or the Hindu culture. And Quran had entered India. Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is seen as Mughal dynasty is there. He is, like every guru is having relationship with people who derive their source of strength from Islam. And their text is Quran. And it's saying, look, regardless of which text you invoke, they all say that there is the one who is infinite. But yet, when you are bringing this in practice, you keep identifying with the finite ones. Mm -hmm. Even though they are great finite ones, but they're still the finite one. 
So this is one way to understand it. Just like in the previous two lines, there were examples of people, they continue in this one. And they continue with this infinite one from Quran even. So essentially saying to us, look, whatever uh, scriptures you may be reading, and we can globalize this, there are more scriptures in the world. There are people of the book, and people of the book are Abrahamic faith, which includes, you know, Quran is of Islam, but uh, Jews and Christians have their own Old Testaments and New Testaments and other scriptures. Similarly, in India, it's not just Vedas and Puranas. There are Simritis and there are Shastras as well. So essentially, and then you take it even further, you bring in uh, all the known religions in terms of major religions as we like to classify when we study them, but there are many mysticisms, many, not as many, there are some old religions, we may not have the numbers right now, Zoroastrians, for example. So essentially it's referring to that the texts do acknowledge that there is the infinite one, but whenever we bring those into practice, we, we get caught up in the finite ones, in the heroes or the mythological characters or the historical, even incarnates and prophets. Yeah, that's helpful. I think, yeah, I don't know. It's it's like an interesting thing because it's not just that we're subverting the paradigm of practice, but we're also kind of, we're saying, okay, we are saying like, okay, if these are the texts that you're looking at, this is what they say. So what, what are we doing in our practice that maybe is different from that? Um, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I guess then the, the other question I have is about the mentions of Indra and Sheshnag. Um, mm. I don't know much about these two references, so I wanted to understand better what the guru might be implying through referencing them, especially in this line. Sure, it's in the larger culture again, you know, just to extend it, you know, in, in the larger culture of the Indian text traditions, you have Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism. In the larger sort of west of India, if we may call it that, you know, is really the Christianity, Islam, and Judaism coming into play, right? So now it's a mention of, because heaven got mentioned earlier, Indra is the king of heavens. Sheshnag refers to something called Fanindra, Fan, the hood of Indra. This is where, this is a thousand-headed king of snakes. And the Munindras are the great sages, such as the one mentioned above, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu, or Rudras. Mm -hmm. And what this is really referring to is, that the ones who have intense concentrations, who are the king of heavens and have thousand-headed king of snakes and the great sages, uh, Munindras, even when they concentrate for eons, eons is in other interpretation of kalp. So kalp, just so put it in the Hindu context, equals to four Hindu eras of the life of Earth, the life of the planet or the, uh, the world as we see it which is considered a one day of Brahma. Essentially for our purposes, it becomes 4.32 billion years. Imagine somebody practicing uh, for that long to develop the level of concentration, right? Now, I think we may get lost in this. So I, there's a different way to present it, which is the word I use. I said, we are used to the word Google. There actually is a term for a largest number we use today. It's called Googleplex. It is the largest name number we are aware of in a single word. And just to put in perspective in terms of math, think number one and put 100 zeros after that. So concentrating for that long, mm. which essentially is 10 raised to the power of 100. And it's one followed by 100 zeros. So that's, that's the known number we have come up with. Still finite, but this is huge. 
Yeah. I mean, now we have grams number and skews number, but they don't know what how big they are. So essentially, uh, the 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 Googleplex would be like our version of the cul, our version of what an eon is, our version of 4.32 billion. No, it will be like one after hundred zeros. That long if you spend time concentrating. Even then, they could not figure out that one. Even then, they couldn't concentrate on that one. So essentially saying, look, it has nothing to do with the length of time or the amount of time you've spent on it. Because people who have been doing it, this still could not figure out how to focus on the on, on that one. Uh, that one being the Haris now. So the texts may have gotten it right, but most religions and people who are deified and iconicized in those religions uh, somehow the focus got lost. So to me, it's saying, look, the focus needs to be on the infinite one, regardless of how we have named for how long, who's been doing what. And I cannot get busy concentrating for a long time, like Googleplex years. Uh, what I need to do is, sure, I can study the text and learn from its interpreters and study the incarnates and the prophets, but I must identify only with the one only with the one, doesn't matter for how long and for how many followers and the level of impact they may have generated on this earth. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think if I read that line in isolation, I would just think it's impossible <laughs> to even connect. So I thank you for putting that in context um, with the whole composition. I think that's really, yeah, that's really something that it's not about the length of time if we're not, if we're still not identifying with the one, we can work and work and work. Yeah, something will come of it. Hmm. But yeah. but that does get tell we get fascinated by it, right? When we see extraordinary things, so it's it's very human like to appreciate it even, which is what these figures are. I mean, we sometimes invoke these figures or you know denouncing them or putting them down. That's not the purpose here at all. Hmm. This is saying, look how hard they worked at it. I mean, but even the the traditions and the cultures and the texts they belong to still identify somebody called the one, the infinite one. They may have a different name for it. So why don't we work towards that one? And why are we working towards the ones who have been subjected to death itself? Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so then for the last two lines, the guru says, whose form and color cannot be recognized, how can that one be called Shyam Krishna? You will only be free from the death web if you cling to the feet of that one. So I'm going to ask you again <laughs> what this mention is of Sham Krishan, um, because I, I don't think I've seen them sort of together like that. Um, yeah, if you could explain that. So, so came Syam kahe hai. The word is Syam, which in contemporary Hindi is Syam. Yeah. So that requires context here. This is very, in, in a popular culture, even today in India, or people who study India or Hinduism know it's referring to Krishna. Because Krishna was of dark complexion. And in that dark, what is meant is sometimes you'll see in iconography or in idolization that it is presented as blue colored one or a violet colored one or a dark complexion one. So it's referring to Krishna whose complexion, Sham, is brought out here. Now, this is important because Krishna, remember, we had covered this earlier, but just to refresh our memories, or for those who are hearing only this podcast, Krishna is an incarnate of Vishnu, who is incarnate of Hari. So this goes back to this Hari idea. Which Hari? 
We identify with the Hari who is all pervasive, the one, the force of the world. And it's saying, look, the one, that Hari has no color or form. Then how can you call Krishna's Shyam, the dark complex, uh, complexion one or the violet or the blue complexion one as the Shyam? Because this is not the one. We are referring to the Hari who has no form, who has no color. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really hitting home now because because then it were juxtap there's a juxtaposition of like one who is so known for their color and form and one whose mm -hmm. form and color can't be contained in that. That's really beautiful. Um, and connecting it to the same thing, the form and color dies. Mm -hmm. The one doesn't. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then the last question about these two lines is like, how do you understand this statement of like becoming free from the death web? Mm. And also just because we've had this conversation so much about like the feet recently and other Gurugansad project work. Also, how are you understanding clinging to the feet of the one? Like, what does that even mean? Um, those are the two things I wanted to ask about. Yeah, so this is about freedom, you know, which classically religious say being saved. An actual phrase in this sabbat is kalajal, which is the death trap. You know, now the death trap is what? Death, there is a web of death. And the web of death essentially means that death comes in many forms. And in this one, remember it started out with 14 levels of hell or heaven. So the death comes in many forms, depending on where you get assigned. Essentially, we are fearful of death and it has multiplicity the way it attacks us. And we, we talk about it, you know, the fear of rejection, the fear of death itself. But death is very physical. But there's a non-physical death, which means we are dying every day. And Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is really asking us to think about which death are you most worried about or only the physical ones? Because there's a death because of the separation, which is what this whole series is about. So the web of death is in multiple forms and colors and deifications and objectifications, it overpowers us in a very small ways from what we call rejections and fear or the stage fright to a very large way to whether uh, will I end up in hell, you know? And what Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj is saying, look, uh, let's not label firstly the one as the Syam because this Syam has color and form, the one has no particular color or form. And to do that with any authority or a mythological character is a, is, a, is a big folly, it's a big mistake, it's a blunderous mistake. And then clinging to the feet, again, South Asian vocabulary, literally feet, okay? So feet is what? Feet is the lowest part of the body. Feet is a symbol of humility as well. Now, physically, when you cling to somebody's feet, imagine a child clinging to the feet of their mom or their dad. Now imagine a lover doing with their beloved. At every level, this can be understood. At a very smallest of the relationship in terms of physical relationship, biological relationship, worldly relationship. And when you extrapolate that, clinging to the feet is essentially getting the mentorship, taking the refuge that I'm holding down to the lowest part of the body because we are used to think like that. And so at the lowest level, whatever I need to do, I will do it and I'm clinging to it because I really want to become free now. I don't want to be in this game of hell or heaven. 
I want to come out of that web. That's the web. That's the trap. And to do that, uh, in humility, I seek your mentorship, the mentorship of the one, the Hari. And I want to identify with that Hari. That's the Hari's now. And this is how I will come out of the entrapments, which are so intricate, depending on who you speak to and which culture or religion or club or cult you get caught up in, it can get pretty intricate. We call it bizarre because when you study it from outside, guess what? All of them are bizarre. So the answer to come out of that is that I want to identify with the Hari. I want to identify with the one. And this is how identification with the deities, which are which I use the word Ines to describe, this is how Ines becomes oneness. Uh, so the question really for me is, in which world do I want to be in? Which world do I want to live in? The world where I'm free, uh, where I'm identifying with the one, or the world where I'm getting more trapped, getting caught up in the web where the identification changes and it may last a very long time, like a Google Plus. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> That's really helpful. I think, and I think anytime I see this, these like the imagery of like feet or sanctuary or anything like that, I do find that quite hopeful. Um, and so I know like in some of the discussions we've had, there are some compositions where there's a lot of kind of direct messaging that might be harder to hear, but it's like nice to I don't know, not nice, but it's good to to have this like element of hope throughout every composition that we can come out of these paradigms um, and these fears. I think that's really helpful. And it's something that I really like. I've, I've really kind of been um, thinking about as we've gone through these different compositions together. Um, I wanted to ask something sort of tying everything together in some way. Um, because you had said like this series is about separation. And I think in some in some way also about the kinds of things that we do when we're in separation, the kinds of things that we struggle with. So whether that's fear or these complicated paradigms or transactional relationships with divinity or elements of divinity or othering people, right? Like we talked about when it comes to demons and deities. Um, we're kind of sometimes gently and sometimes a little bit more strongly um, steered to think about things in a way that is vaster. I feel like we're constantly being sort of, it feels like we're constantly be, being sort of like tapped on the shoulder and said, but look at how much bigger things are. Um, and I find great compassion in that. And I think um, if I hadn't had these conversations with you about sort of each line, uh, I probably would have read less compassion into some of these. And I think that's just because that's where I'm coming from, right? Um, and it's easy to sort of read things. We've talked about this before. It's easy to sort of read things and be like, oh, okay, so this is a condemnation. And then my job now as a as a good Sikh of the guru is to like go out and point fingers at everybody else. But it's really made me like reflect on what I'm being um, compassionately like steered toward or steered to like rethinking and um and sort of asking, being asked to sort of zoom out uh, and look at a little bit more vastly, both in my thoughts and in my behavior. So I guess I wanted to ask you like how you 
how you understand this in, I guess, the context of what we spoke about at the beginning of this series of like, we don't really know Guru Gobind Singh Sahib all that well. And it becomes that our conversations um, use both him as like a figure and his writing as we understand it as kind of like mm. justifications in our arguments. Um, to me, it becomes pretty like sad uh, because we miss the message. But I'm I'm also wondering about this theme of like compassion, even as we're, our separation is being addressed and where that might be lacking in the conversations I've either witnessed or been a part of. Um, and I know that's a pretty open-ended question, but I think it's something that I'm still sort of churning, thinking about in my brain. Um, yeah. And then if you have any closing thoughts aside from that, obviously I'd love to hear that, but I've just been thinking about how easily I read these without compassion before we spoke. So Jocelyn, this is where we all have some opportunities. Um, let me pick a couple of words. Sure. So Paatshahi Dasmi. Paatshahi and Baatshahi, I think if we understand that difference, Paatshah is the one who is in the realm, two realms, you know, the eternal sovereign, and Baatshah who is positionally sovereign, the one who gets to dictate. Obviously, in dictatorship, there is not much compassion. And if there is, it is very exclusive. In Paatshah, it is both worlds, you know, classical interpretation is this world and the world beyond. But the neo-interpretation or Sikh interpretation is always about in the two realms which dominate the world, the spiritual and the political. So that's one way to look at it. So when we say blank Parshahidasvi, it invokes that feeling. And because we have language barrier, which is the second thing I want to mention, we don't get the color and the context. Because the color and the context is saying Guru Govind Singh Maharaj is fully aware of what people of South Asia are going through. And in none of these compositions, in Sabad Hajare Pashai Dasmi, it is for the world. Through South Asia, he's speaking to the world that this is about ending separation of everyone, separation with the one. And he fully knows them. So he uses that vocabulary. He uses those figures. He uses those ideas. He talks about those texts. He talks about their heroes and their icons because that's what people are in. So he's very aware of the popular culture of the time, the textual culture of the time, the historical, geopolitical issues of the time. And knowing all that, he says, it's still very possible. Let's come out of this game. Let's end our separation. Because the ultimate goal is to end the separation. To end that separation, you develop things. And Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj developed many things like the gurus did. So I think if we look at those two, because we are language access, uh, does not give us the right color. And the, all the translations we have done and the commentaries we have done and the podcasts we have done, they do not come close to explaining the idea of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj. And in fact, they are not ideas. They are his realities. And even if a poet is telling us this, he's taking us closer to getting to know Guru Gobind Singh's compassion, as you put it. As he sees in everyone, and only in one composition he invoked, Mitar Pyare Nuhal Murida Dakana. And even there, it's interpretive. Even if you take the historical element out, it's actually referring to any disciple, not just the Khalsa after the Nanpur separation. 
So the point is, this is really about our biggest pain. Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj knows that. He also knows all the games we get caught up to eliminate that pain or to hide that pain and how people prey on that pain. And he keeps taking us back to the one. The one who is infinite and the one who is the beloved, the one who is a friend, the one who is vast, the one who is everywhere the force of the world. Understanding that, connecting to that one uh, is, the, is the way we end our separation. Okay, <laughs> I don't have any other closing thoughts. I think I couldn't have said it better. Um, yeah, I'm kind of sad to be ending, but uh, I hope that people have been listening along and that they've enjoyed and and taken things from from each episode that they're still thinking about the way that I know I am. Um, yeah, as always, many insights were shared today, uh, and I hope everyone's feeling inspired. I know that this is the last episode, but still, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at justlene.gore at sikri.org. And I guess we'll see you on the next one whenever it comes. Thank you. Well, well Justlene, since it's the last one, thank you for engaging in these conversations and dialoguing with me on uh, with the work which was produced through the team, actually. But the conversations you're having with me because, you know, I was working with each member of the team to produce a particular product and to the audience for uh, listening to it. And also hopefully uh, it goes back to the original idea. One of the original reasons why we did this, which was let's get to know who we call Maharaj, the Kalgiyawala, the Neelewala, the Bajawala, the Pantdawali. Those otherwise will become deification themselves if we don't know, because Patshahi Dasmi is not connecting us with him. He's connecting us with the one. So let's get to know the vision of the one. The embodiment of the ultimate sovereign, the one, for us is the sovereign in the form of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj and the 10 Gurus. So let's get to know him. Essentially, uh, read more Shabads. And even if the debate continues on the exactness of them, take the idea from them to end our own separations. That's great. Thank you very much, Rinder Singh. And thank you to our listeners. Waigiriji Ka Khalsa. For a deeper appreciation and connection with the Sepad, we have added by Bobir Singh's rendition. We hope you enjoy it.
पातशाही दसवीनहर नम नजन पिनहर
You were listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.